Good morning, everyone. I have with me Alan Rothling, a high-profile ESG investor who's going to give us a take on how ESG businesses uh, are functioning in India, specifically the impact of ESG. And Alan, uh, very nice to have you on another episode of Bensil Talk. Hi. Great, Alan. So, Alan, um, curious to know, you are also the co-founder of eCube. Uh, which is a high-impact ESG investor. So how did this whole thought about ESG investing come about, um, you know, between you and your other colleagues uh, who started the firm? Okay, so um, a few years ago, I exited from my previous business, which was a solar uh, developer platform, uh, which I co-founded along with my um, friend, Adishia Contractor. Um, and in 2018, therefore, I was thinking about what, what to do next, um, and there's always an next in business, uh, particularly in India. At the same time as two very old friends came out of the Tata group. So that's uh, Mukund Rajan and Govind Shankarayanan. So we began to get talking about what we could do. Uh, I'd obviously spent uh, nearly a decade uh, after my time with Tata's uh, in the uh, renewable energy space. Uh, Mukund had been head of sustainability um, at Tata's, but also um, chief ethics officer, brand custodian. Um, so I had a very strong um, belief in ethics and governance um, and uh, in environmental standards. Um, and, uh, and Govind had been running um, uh, uh, much of Tata Capital for many years. He was the, the founding uh, CEO and CFO of Tata Capital. Um, so the three of us uh, compared notes and we, had, we decided that we would do something around ESG in India um, in the belief that um, raising standards of environmental uh, governance and uh, social standards in business is one good for society and two uh, it's good for business i mean the the um, undisputed evidence uh, is that there is an extremely strong correlation between high standards of es and g and shareholder performance performance so uh, i think it's difficult now to argue that short changing standards of esg uh, leads to higher profit and higher returns for shareholders compared to doing the right thing so you do the right thing because it is the right thing, but you also do the right thing because it's good for business. Fair enough. Uh, it's a valid argument, but Alan, if you see, uh, you know, generally what the critics say or the stock market performances and valuation, we are still very fixated with, you know, quarter to quarter results, the bottom line. Uh, and when they're looking at ESG standards or the triple bottom line, um, which can be difficult to quantify at times. How do you see that uh, aligning with the way we've been valuing businesses? Well, all I can do is point to the data, right? Um, data point number one, we have an advisor in, in EQube called Professor George Serafim is at Harvard Business School. He is the guru of correlating ESG standards of public companies against long-term creation of, of wealth as measured by profitability and indeed by stock market performance. And his data is very clear that there is a strong causal link between the two, right? The, the second thing is, look at it, if you want to look at the Indian market only, correlate um, MSCI's uh, ESG index uh, against the market. And you will see very strong outperformance over time, not every quarter, obviously, of businesses with strong um, uh, indicators of ESG performance um, uh, with stock market performance. So while analysts may get excited about short-term profit, on a secular basis, the far more important thing is, are you creating value? Are you managing risk? Uh, are you delivering products which people want? Uh, 
And I think the, the really fascinating uh, change in many ways has been that if you just take environmental, um, environmental uh, standards are now becoming increasingly cash profit enhancing. So that was probably not the case. Um, see um, Bill Gates's new book, and he focuses a lot of the book uh, on what he calls the green premium. In other words, how much more does it cost to use an environmental um, uh, standard or technology compared to the old gas guzzling uh, alternative on the argument that oil is underpriced uh, and that oil and coal uh, you know, are underpriced partly because of government subsidy and partly because um, uh, they do not uh, price in the externalities of their use. But the reality is in many, many sectors of the economy and many technologies, it is now more cost-effective to use something which is better for the environment than the old alternative. And the most obvious example in India, of course, is our enormous success in solar. So, you know, new solar projects are being bid at two rupees a kilowatt hour, while to build a coal plant, uh, probably in today's market, it might cost you know, between four and five rupees. So, you know, it is oh. half as cheap to construct a green asset than a coal asset. Now, that that isn't, of course, to argue that, that uh, solar is the answer to all our problems. It's not. Solar is an intermittent, you know, obviously it is not um, generating during the, the night and it fluctuates during the day and during the seasons, etc. So all I'm saying is that often now, increasingly often, the economics are driving you in the same way, even on a short term, you know, the stuff that we're taught in Economics 101 at, at school rather than, you know, real business strategy, it is better to do the green thing than not. I'll give you another example. Um, I yeah. sat on the board for nearly a decade of a, a very well-known 250-year-old British company uh, with strong operations in India, one of the biggest British employers in India with about six factories. Um, one of the things they've done over the last decade is reduce their costs and increase their margins and their cash flow. And a key driver of that has been a consistent, persistent reduction in their use of uh, electricity their use of water, the percentage of water which they are discharging, which has been cleaned, the percentage of water which is put back into the system. So on just about every measure you can think of that matters for them on an ESG standard, you know, energy use, uh, um, uh, wastage, water use, and so on, there is a you know, very obvious correlation between an improvement in the business and an improvement in these ESG standards. And of course, particularly in the Indian condition, the starting point of all this is the G of ESG, governance. So, you know, the thing that um, foreigners say about India, but also we Indians, if I can call myself an Indian, if you'll excuse me for doing so, <laughs> talk about Indian business is, you know, the quality of the promoters. You know, we, we all know that there are good companies and there are bad companies and there are ugly companies in India. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of the, some of the really good guys uh, have you know very strong standards of governance. Doesn't mean it's it's always uh, 100%. Just look at my old shop of the Tata Group. Clearly, there are ways in which the Tata Group could have done better, you know, in many points of, it, of its history. But the intent yeah. is there. And I think if you if you look at the intent of the Tata Group over its 150 years of existence and the impact positively it has had on India and the world. You know, there's a very strong link between governance, standards, intent, ethics, um, management, um, you know, and 
the delivery of good product, well delivered to, and then, you know, decent reward to shareholders. Fair enough. In fact, that's a very good example, Alan, you took of the Tata group with this legacy. Uh, the term ESG may have been coined a couple of decades back, but they've been following this uh, over, over a very long time, which is, has been the vision of its founders. So, Absolutely. You know, in the, a, mid, in the middle of the boardroom, in the middle of the boardroom in the in Bombay House, the fourth floor of Bombay House, there there is yes. you know that Parsi um, a slogan of, of or, or or phrase, you know, uh, good thoughts, good, good good words, good deeds, and that sums it up, right? You you're trying to do something good, you try to treat people well, and you try to make sure your actions are positive. Uh, Alan, can you repeat that for our viewers' advantage? What was the quote at Bombay House that you mentioned? Um, it's a Zoroastrian text, I believe. It good thoughts, good words, good, thought, good deeds, good words, good and deeds. It, it's, it's essentially the the, the uh, early catchphrase before leadership with trust. Um, it, it sums up what the Tata Group is about. Absolutely, I think that's pretty well said. Uh, Alan, moving on, um, we also talk about you know how you talk about companies which are good companies or bad and ugly companies. And there's a lot of talk of greenwashing. And we know at CSR, there is this mandate to spend on social projects and how companies have been trying to manipulate that over time. Do you mm -hmm. see that thought process changing at leadership level and in boardrooms? That I think is very important to understand. Yes, I think it, I think it is changing in boardrooms and it's changing partly because of intergenerational change. So often you have a, a new generation uh, of you know, family promoter groups uh, taking over a business and wanting to institute change uh, on a governance basis, uh, but also in terms of their uh, environmental and indeed social impact. Um, I am not a great fan of, of you know, the 2% CSR, uh, not least as I think there is now academic evidence that you know, some of the good companies have scaled down their uh, contribution in CSR to get to the 2% right. instead of scaling up to the 2%. That's right. yes. And... Um, you know, I'm the definition of CSR. You know, what is CSR? So, if you were to build, you know, make a contribution to um, a temple, is that CSR? In the views of many people, it is. Uh, if you if you are, you know, um, uh, pr promoting events, um, then you know which which senior managers and their families attend, is that CSR? Um, you know, or is it marketing? Um, I don't. I mean, these things. Yes, the intent of the legislation is good. And of course, it's partly required in India because things which in other countries um, are provided normally by the government, you know, companies in order to operate need to do. And that's one of the reasons that there is such an extraordinary history in India of strong social commitment, because you can't operate in many parts of the country unless you put in the social services, do the healthcare, uh, education, uh, you, you know, I'm thinking of Jamshedpur and so on. You know that that classic right. Indian corporate commitment, not just to the township around your factory, but the community that surrounds the township around your factory. So I think you know India, in Indian business, um, still have this you know world leadership position in social commitment, and that's nothing to do with a government mandate to do two percent on CSR. That's because many Indian businessmen uh, felt it was the right thing to do, Jamshi Tata and many, many others, but also because, you know, if you do this, you, you know, you, you support your business. You produce a social, sure. you generate a social license to operate. Um, the, the risk 
that you have operating in in you know parts of the country where the rule of the state is not is not as effective is is better, um, and the community that you need to support your factory um, is in itself supported. So you know if you have a healthy um, uh, city or town uh, which attracts people, you're going to have a pool of workforce. Uh, you're providing employment and social services for the for the families of the people who work for you. So all of that is in your in your own personal interest, um, not just because it's the right thing to do. But the, the two to me are, you know, interconnected. It doesn't matter which comes first, whether it's self-interest sure. or 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 for the you know because you believe in doing the right thing as a good person. Um, the two go together. And why question people's motives as they're doing the right thing? I think that's a very pertinent point, Alan, you made, which comes first can be argued, but the fact of matter that's good for the business, that's good for the society and the environment. And I think if they are aligned, then automatically it falls in place. So uh, do you think um, by making legislation more stronger, uh, more quantifiable, uh, we can actually get businesses to voluntarily invest in, you know, uh, nation building, infrastructure building, society building, which will automatically help the businesses and the communities around them? Not necessarily, no. I mean, I think I'm, I'm a believer in markets. So, um, I mean, I, I think what the government has done with the business responsibility uh, statements, um, that's very good because that's disclosure information. Um, so if you accept my argument that there's a correlation between doing business well and good business, um, if you disclose to investors what you're doing, then the market has the ability to judge. Um, and I think that will also put pressure on management and promoters and shareholders to do the right thing. So it's a virtuous circle. Um, if you legislate for things and require people to do things, then frankly, you get behavior patterns to get around it. I mean, um, the, the one thing that, that uh, GOI is amazing at is, is regulation, right? Uh, they probably have more regulations, inspectors, and all of that probably was put in place with good intent. But the more regulation you have, you, the more clever people are advising companies how to get around it, whether it be the sure. tax rules, you know, how do you maximize your benefit given the thousands of different regulations of tax, um, you know, uh, or whatever it is. So um, in my personal experience, light touch regulation uh, together with disclosure and the uh, permitting of competitive markets to function typically produces a better and more innovative uh, um, performance than something which is heavily directed by the state. Um, you know, we, we, I think it's, think it's still true and perhaps it's now gone that we still have, you know, salt inspectors from, you know, and salt of course is highly um, integrated with the Indian nationalist movement. I mean, Gandhi himself was, you know, arrested for picking up salt on the seashore. So, you know, why do we still have salt laws and salt inspectors? Now, perhaps sure. that's one of the ones that's, that's gone. I haven't um, kept in touch with salt regulation, but you know <laughs> what I mean. We th there are more um, inspectors, regulations, licenses, controls in India than any other countries is about that I've, I've ever done business in. Um, each one of which probably had a good purpose when it was put in place. But the cumulative oh. effect and the complexity and the ossification of these uh, controls, licenses, um, systems and processes just holds business back, adds to cost uh, and prevents innovation. So, 
you know, let's have high standards of, of governance and high standards of environment and social performance. But the way the state insists on them should be as light touch. And when there is a requi something required, you know, a, a factory license, whatever it is, um, you know, let's make it easy to get or, or, or a, you know, refusal instead of, you know, applying for something and then being in limbo or uh, have some inspector call by and, um, you know, disrupt your business and giving somebody the opportunity to squeeze you. So um, I think there is still, despite efforts of the government over the last 10, 20 years, there is enormous scope for deregulation um, in India uh, and, and allowing people to, to perform, not least, you know, to speaking, I mean, I, I mentioned that I'm partly Indian in some ways, but I'm also a foreigner, right? So, so what is it that in, the Indian government still has concerns about foreign business in India? So retail, I mean, why are foreigners still not permitted to own and operate shops? So what do you expect, you know, uh, Mr. Bezos to do if he owns a shop? I mean, he can't take the shop away. Um, now, clearly there are political reasons in India why <laughs> retail is, is a politically sensitive subject and big retail and online retail, et cetera. Um, but as a result, we, we have ridiculous rules that, you know, um, Flipkart, uh, which is owned by a foreign company uh, is treated differently from, from Amazon, which is owned by a foreign company. Um, and all of them are treated differently from something which, you know, Reliance or, or the Birla Group may be putting up in retail um, to the detriment of Indian consumers, Indian farmers, um, all for, you know, a relatively short-term political calculation. Anyway, I think we've got a little distance away from sustainability. Um, <laughs> But you're, well, you're touching enough, things that have uh, bugged me for 30 years of doing business in India. I understand. I, I can see that pain. And, uh, and you know, the moment I said regulation, I, I, I got it. But it's a fair point uh, coming back, Alan, that at the end of the day, let the markets decide. Let's have better disclosure. So do you think that's the way to go with ESG as well in terms of um, CSR went wrong when the government put in regulation and the 2% cap came and very rightly people found ways of overcoming them. So what would be an ideal way to incentivize companies to invest in ESG, to look at ESG holistically as part of the business and not something that they have to do because it's nice to do? Well, I, th I think it's going to happen. It's going to happen less because of what the government may do. And I'll come back to the government in, in, in a sec, but because consumers um, will require it. So particularly younger generation of Indian consumers will be just like young consumers everywhere, just like my kids. Sure. They will buy products. They will buy brands. They will, they will use services of companies that they believe share their values. So, you know, companies will do the right thing and position their products because consumers expect them to and will buy products and pay more for products which are cleaner and which, you know, supply chains are not involved in, involving, you know, abuse of, of somebody or whatever it is. Um, secondly, investors. So, you know, the markets will put pressure on companies because investors are smart and they can see the data. So, you know, if you genuinely believe in the long run, businesses that with high standards of ESG have fewer governance failures and risk events. So risk is lower, therefore discount rates and the cost of capital are lower um, and their growth is higher and their margins are better and therefore their stock market performance is better. Investors will pressurize management to do the right thing. And then employees, 
you know, or companies are run by people. Um, the senior management have got kids who berate them at the dining room table saying, daddy, you know, or mummy increasingly, you know, why is your company not doing this? Or why is your, you know, your, your, your mine or whatever it is running into social problems with tribals or whatever it may be. But the employees are also demanding that companies behave. We've seen in the States, you know, revolts by um, even IT guys within uh, Google over, you know, contracts in, from the government and the military and so on. So senior management feel the pressure from multiple sources, but they're also, you know, senior management also read and think and are members of society and genuinely want to do the right thing. So it's not as if, um, you know, they're evil capitalists who are plotting to bring down the world. They're not. They're decent people trying to do the right thing. Um, and as they see the evidence that high standards of governance, social and, and environmental performance will deliver them with a better performance, they'll also be inclined to do the right thing. But then you come to governments. So, I mean, clearly policy and regulation has a role, um, potentially, particularly in the environmental space. Um, so, you know, I mentioned something about solar. I think that the Indian government's reaction to climate change and particularly the national solar mission policy suite of reactions has been world-class and the result is there to be seen. We now are among the largest solar markets in the world and certainly the cheapest. You know, we, we're, we've way busted the original 20 gigawatt target that Mr. Modi, when he was elected first in 2014, listed, lifted to 100 gigawatts and then lifted again. You know, it has been a fabulous success story in terms of the way that thoughtful long-term policy making um, can make an impact, create a market, provide incentives, and then allow the economics of scale and competition to work. You know, the, the, the bidding process under the National Solar Mission, I went through four rounds uh, in, okay. in Kiran. You know, it was intensely competitive. And there was no doubt that, you know, the people accuse government contracting in India of, of being murky. This was not. This was, you know, online bidding with the, the bids being opened in public. Uh, it was an extraordinary demonstration of good policy making that the rest of the world, you know, took up and noticed. So, you know, government clearly has a role, but its, a, it's role is to shape the contours of markets rather than stipulate what, what can be done. So, let, you know, let's free up the, um, in the, innov the innovative capability and the competitive dynamic of, of Indian business uh, rather than set things down in, you know, in regulation uh, and tell people what they must do with, you know, 2% of their profit. Sure. Fair enough. Valid point, uh, Alan. So, uh, Alan, uh, you spoke about the solar policy and how that was world class and that has really brought about a transformation. And that's something I've also heard from a lot of other experts. So, can you specifically point out what were the aspects of the policy which really uh, worked in our favor and how can we replicate that in ESG overall? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, 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 the government when it began to get serious on solar policy, you know, the policy was introduced in 2008 and really began to take off in, say, 2010, appreciated that the critical thing in infrastructure is who pays. Um, mm -hmm. 
and relying on 28 dis discoms of 28 states with differential quality of policy thinking and differential certainty of paying bills, if I can say about state discoms, was probably not the way. And introducing uh, originally, you know, a subsidiary of NTPC, uh, NVVN, to be the buyer of the national contracts, uh, the PPAs, um, and to let those not through a government set regulated price, but through a reverse auction process to discover the price. And I have to say, because I'm a believer in free markets, not stipulating what technologies should be used, but being technology neutral, including the usage of imported equipment, that all of that produced a, a highly effective rolling model um, that, that, that built the, the solar market. Um, so we had some states, Gujarat, Rajasthan, Maharashtra, Karnataka, who picked up the battle and ran with it. But we also had the, the central policy uh, driven by the, the, the Ministry of Renewable Energy with the support of NTPC, NVVN. And it, it, you know, the result was, was, was spectacular over time. So the other thing, it's, you know, it's now 10 years, right? That the, 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 yeah. these policies have been in place. So I think where the policy has been less effective is when political pressure has built up. And let me just use two, two examples, which I think are sure. you know, regressive. One is the introduction of import controls over foreign technology. So why should mm -hmm. bidders be denied world-class technologies at world-class costs in order to, fa to favor local production? I mean, I, you know, I don't understand it. Um, and particularly people who bid on one basis suddenly find they can't import their equipment um, on the same basis and the import tariffs or controls have been introduced. The second thing is that we still have um, discoms who have vested interests and find that, for example, open access projects um, uh, or net metering has adverse impacts on their business model. So, you know, in some states we've had um, because of the, the interests of DISCOMs, which of course are state-owned state, state -owned entities, um, some of the rules of competitive open access um, and, and policies to encourage uh, rooftop solar systems have been tinkered with, so-called for, for level playing field effects and protect the DISCOM. When actually, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the interests of the consumer, I mean, after all, it's the consumer who's paying the bills and the consumer who's the Absolutely. voter, you know, are, are affected in the interests of, of the providers. So I think there is still a weakness in the system around the way that um, the, the, the tariffs electricity have, have been tinkered with by politicians over, the, over many decades so that we've got all this cross subsidies and so on, where industry and commerce pay very high prices in order to keep prices low for you and me, but particularly also say for farmers and others. Um, and the way that the producers, the, the state-owned electricity companies are listened to um, by the politicians, the regulators and others, rather than allowing, you know, we really need to grasp that nettle of the finances of the discoms. Um, in a previous life, uh, I, I was in the policy unit number 10 in the UK, when we were introducing privatization um, of a number of sectors, including electricity. Um, and therefore I'm a great believer that state-owned entities like these 
are typically better suited with um, you know, being in the private sector. And if you want to introduce subsidies, make them explicit. Uh, if you want to have policies to encourage certain activities um, or to support certain sectors of, of society, make them explicit in policy and pay for them rather than disguise them by averaging out. So, you know, for example, you know, I was involved in the privatization of British Railways um, and, you know, the, the, the profitable bit of the old British Rail system was subsidizing the unprofitable bit. And we moved to a system which explicitly recognized the fact that, um, you know, uh, commuter railway lines would not make money and therefore the government should pay for those. And intercity railway lines could make money or, or, or you know, freight could make money. Um, and you, you reduce the implicit cross-subsidy. So I, I think there are many things that governments can do to ensure that the outcomes are optimal for the consumer and for society. But, but Reggie, let me just make the, the other most obvious point, which is you know, all of this has in the context of probably the most existential threat to our well-being in society that we faced. And I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about climate change. Right. There's yeah, a reason absolutely. why there's a reason why all this thing is, is far more important than the economics of discoms or, you know, the fate of political parties, whatever it is. It, India is one of the countries that is most threatened by climate change It's not the cause is not responsible for climate change, but is going to be the victim, uh, whether it be sea level rise. You know, I spent a lot of time in Calcutta, which flooded, you know, every year. I remember taking my kids to school through floods and having to carry them to, you know, through flood waters to, in and out of their schools. Yeah. You know, that's going to get okay. worse. Uh, the same in Chennai, the same in Mumbai, right? So um, farmers, uh, more than half our farmers depend on the monsoon rather than irrigation. Absolutely. And right. even the irrigation depends on the monsoon pattern and indeed the glaciers of the Himalayas. So if you have changing patterns of monsoon, if you have changing patterns of rainfall and a melting of, of ice caps up in the Himalayas, it's going to have profound impacts on hundreds of millions of Indians. So, you know, India as a responsible democracy um, has a role to play in responding to this crisis. Um, and it will be very interesting to see what the prime minister um, says in the run-up to and his presence at the COP26 conference in Glasgow in November. You know, okay. India in the next decade is going to become the biggest net emitter, um, bigger than China, bigger than the US, because our economy is going to carry on growing, right? We hopefully will, right. after COVID, resume growth at 7, 8, 9, 10, even 12%. Um, and that means that more uh, Indians will get wealthier, more Indians will start owning cars, wanting to have holidays, wanting to air conditioners. And so they must, right? The, there's no reason that they should be denied those things. But they must be more sustainable. Just because Absolutely. you have a car does not mean that you, you know, do the, uh, the American gas guzzling trick. You know, so Absolutely. we can have economic growth with... Uh, with much lower energy intensity and impact on the environment. And I do believe that India can also commit to becoming, you know, um, net carbon neutral um, by the middle of the century, because we're a competitive, dynamic country in which, you know, 
we have engineers of the highest quality. Um, Absolutely. And if you look at where the, you know, where is the carbon coming from? 70% is coming from energy. So energy is probably the, the, the first sector which can be decarbonized. Transport is part of that. Transport can largely be decarbonized, particularly obviously personal transport, public transport. Um, and then we're left with the much harder areas of, of uh, mitigation, particularly agriculture um, and um, heavy industry. So, you know, I think we can get the 70% done economically, positively, um, energy generation, transport. And then we can turn our, you know, policy goals to and support to the more you know, hard to abate areas of industry and agriculture. Absolutely. So, Alan, uh, you very rightly pointed out about climate change, the risk. In fact, just this week, coincidentally, I was also interviewing Jatin Singh, who's the founder of SkyMet, India's first weather forecasting company. And we were discussing about how we are going to consume more as an economy as we grow. But actually, the fact of the matter, as individuals of the society, and if we really want to live you know, coexist with the planet, we need to start consuming less. We need to become more responsible. We need to become more sustainable. And I think that is very important at an individual level, which will reflect at a society level. And I think you, you kind of resonated but, but Rajiv, on that thought. Right. But that, Rajiv, that doesn't mean that we can we need to deny ourselves, you know, uh, the, the, the things that, that improve our lives. Um, so sure. we don't have to, to, to remain in a village in the dark without power, you know, and, true, true. and not tra not traveling. So, you know, young Indians want the benefits that they see young people in the rest of the world enjoying. And so they Absolutely. should. So they should. Um, so we have to innovate as industry of how to offer uh, these types of benefits. And there's so much cool stuff out there. I mean, just to give you an example, I sit on the board of a startup in, in Switzerland, which has developed some three young guys out of the, the, the the Technical University in Lausanne, uh, EPFL, they have developed the world's most efficient flat solar panel, 29%. Um, they're, they're, okay. you know, they're, they're guys still in their 20s. Um, and they now made this translucent so that you can potentially put these panels above crops without impacting the growth of the crop. And in fact, improving the growth of the crop. But because these panels have got micro-tracking uh, built into them, you can modulate the amount of light that hits the plant uh, so that in a very hot and sunny environment where you know heat, excessive heat can be bad for the crop, you can control how much light gets through. You can reduce the, the amount of direct sunlight and heat on the crop. Uh, you also can collect water and generate power at the same time. So, you know, hopefully Insulite, which is the name of that company, um, becomes, you know, one of the standard solutions to, to energy gener generation. I don't know. We'll see. But my point is, coming out of universities and workshops across the world, there are ideas like this, which can make our lives better, generate power cheaper, um, you know, and, and reduce our impact on the environment. Absolutely. In fact, I think that was another point we discussed. There's a lot of technologies available now and uh, with innovation and startup, you know, focusing on sustainability. I think that's the way to go. We have to adapt a lot of these and we need to definitely improve lives. As you rightly said, people need access to, you know, to the basics and they would like to, you know, upgrade their lifestyle. But at the same time, how do we really mitigate the environmental risk? How do we become more balanced and sustainable? That's the point. 
Correct. And industry is where we, you know, in, in many ways to start because a guy sitting, you know, in a boardroom can begin something which is easier than, you know, trying to change the way that um, consumers behave because consumers, you know, it's thousands of decisions compared to a more concentrated decision-making process. So sustainable business, right. we need business leaders to step up. Uh, we need um, business leaders to say, I'm going to invest in R&D. I am going to put in systems to digitize, measure, monitor, and improve my performance on environmental standards. Um, we need business leaders to say, you know, I'm going to drive towards a target of net neutrality. And all, all credit to, to Emphasis for becoming, you know, net neutral years before their original target. Um, now they're in, they're in a sector where you know clearly their footprint is is probably less. Um, they have travel, they have they have computers, they have offices, and, and you know these things are probably easier to mitigate than if you're running a steel plant. But even so, you know even the steel plant can do a lot. So Tata Steel, I remember uh, Doc Irani who turned around Tata Steel in the 90s, telling me the way he he made Tata Steel the lowest cost producer in the world was by reducing the amount of energy per, per unit produced. That's and right. we need, you know, we need that that thinking. We need the investment and That's the right. in incremental improvements in, in reduction and then the breakthroughs. You know, what can we do to change technology types um, to, to make step changes as well? Com combine both. That is absolutely right. So, uh, Alan, uh, one of the things which is intriguing is uh, Europe is, uh, you know, a leader as far as facility goes in terms of the thought process, in terms of, you know, the consumer interest. Uh, so what can we really learn from them in India and adapt uh, some of those best practices? Well, I, I, I'm not sure Europe necessarily is one of the leaders. I mean, I think, you know, the U.S. <laughs> in many ways leads it because of the, the strength of the U.S. scientific base. So, so yes, socially, um, Europe has had, you know, more responsible consumers, people adopting smaller cars, uh, et cetera, compared to, to, the, to the States. But I'm not sure uh, European business is necessarily um, more sustainable than US business. Um, mm -hmm. What's very noticeable about the world, but particularly, I guess, Europe is, is, is young people. Um, what you know, the, there's been a generational shift, um, and pe and parents, people, people of my generation, are catching up with our kids, um, and catching up with um, you know uh, the grandparents having to catch up with their grandkids. So so maybe that's more advanced in 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 a European system uh, than it is in you know elsewhere. But frankly, I think you know young people because of the internet, um, you know, are part of a are more similar to each other across the world in that some way than... than yeah, everybody's um, you know, global now, absolutely. Ab absolutely. The same information is available to a, you know, a kid in Bangalore as in, as in Beijing or, or Boulder, Colorado. Sure, absolutely. So do you think they will lead this whole change um, as we speak in terms of being more responsible, more outspoken, leading more sustainable lives, uh, moving towards sharing economy and all of that? Yes, I think so. But then I, you know, I think we're all rational, right? So if we older people are also presented with the data which kids have seen in school or on social media, we will also change our behaviour. You know, so mm -hmm. so um, you know, older people also want to do the right thing, 
and make a contribution as they can by, by you know, um, buying an electric vehicle, um, by insulating their home, um, you know, by, by changing their consumption pattern in terms of the types of products. Um, uh, now, some people may find it more difficult to take some of the steps that, you know, more young people do around, you know, for example, reducing their meat consumption. Obviously, that sort of thing has an impact. Um, Absolutely. So, so I, I think, you know, the, the young the young people are leading the way, but but us oldies are will will follow. What Fair we need enough. is you know all this information to be out there so that we can all make our own Absolutely. decisions. I I think that's very important in terms of people talking about it, people sharing and creating awareness because there could be a lot of myths around things. And I think it's very important. And we are doing our bit to focus on sustainability and talking to business leaders like you, so that you know at the end of the day we have different perspective, thought process, and you know hopefully a lot of uh, convergence can happen around this. Absolutely right. So, Alan, before we close, I would like to hear some inspiring stories that you've come across, specifically in Indian context, where Indian businesses or startups have really taken the bat in and said that, hey, we would do our bit and we will, you know, challenge things and the status quo and try to, you know, outdo ourselves uh, as far as sustainability goes. Well, I think the, the, the best data I can give you is, um, you know, four years ago when I was... Um, beginning to move out of, out of Kiran, I decided um, that as somebody late in life had become an entrepreneur in India, that, that I was part of a much wider movement, which I didn't fully understand. So I decided to write a book about entrepreneurship in India. And the basis of that was I went and interviewed 109 entrepreneurs in India wow. about their experience. And very clearly, one of the you know, conclusions of that, those series of interviews, was there was a generational difference, not necessarily in terms of age, but in terms of the timing of when people became entrepreneurs between the kind of, you know, if I can call them the Murti generation, the people who got going in the 80s or the 90s around the time the reform program started, you know, the, the, the Screwwallers and the Mittals uh, and, you know, uh, um, the Kotaks, guys like that had it was much harder for them to create businesses and succeed. Their chance of success was much less. True. But their motivational, their motivation was also different compared to the generation, let's say, post-2000. Because the generation post-2000 often believed that they, they were not just creating a business to make some money or to you know, uh, achieve um, a sectoral difference but they actually were setting out to change the world. So if you talk to the founders of Flipkart or Ola uh, or Paytm, you know, these guys, the level of their ambition, much higher. Their willingness to, to take risk in many ways, their scale of, you know, risk-taking much higher because they believed that it was possible to do things in a different way compared to, you know, the previous generation who was much more constrained by the kind of, you know, post-Neruvian ice age that will had us all frozen in regulatory grip. So, so the, the new generation were kind of, um, you know, were not constrained by the by a feeling of impossibility. Um, and this includes sustainability, right? So many of these guys were building businesses, not just in IT, but businesses around sustainable business models. Some of them in my sector of, of renewable energy generation, but you know, across the economy. 
So I think, this, you know, the, the inspiring stories of Indian entrepreneurship are just myriad. The guys who, you know, have created enormous businesses with enormous speed and are trying to do the right thing to change society. Um, you know, they're, they're, and it's spreading. It's no longer constrained to, you know, the IIT wallows of Bangalore and Noida. It's now spreading to the guys who didn't go to those schools and live in secondary cities and they live in Eastern India or the Northeast, right? Um, or the deep South, not just, you know, in Bangalore um, uh, or Gurgaon. So, you know, it, there's a real democratization of entrepreneurship. People who really think that in their lifetime, they can, you know, follow what's happened in China of a complete transformation of society driven by young people of ambition applying new technology to solve old problems for the benefit of, of consumers and make some money along the way. I think very, very well summarized, Alan. Uh, the new India, uh, the new generation entrepreneurs willing to take risks and more importantly, create impact. I think that's a very important point. So Alan, as we close, uh, just on a lighter note, do you keep getting a lot of proposals for ESG investments and keeping you up sleepless nights? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, what what we're, we're we're focused on at the moment, though, is creating a green uh, MBFC. So we're trying to to set up what will be, you know, um, a green finance institution, a green bank, eventually, perhaps, if the RBI will will permit it. But you know, th there's so much happening, and there are, obviously there's 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 requirement for equity finance, but there's also an enormous requirement for debt finance. So when you buy your electric, you know, electric scooter uh, or your five-star uh, AC or your rooftop solar system, you want finance to go with it because, you know, okay. many ways, you know, what, what um, you know, Uber and Ola have taught us is you don't have to own assets, right? You can Absolutely. finance them, you can share them. You know, financing is critical and ownership models are critical to the new type of economy. So I think... Um, you know, the financial institutions need to change. And if they're not going to change, we can set up new institutions to, to show them the way. So you or uh, your company is setting up a green bank or uh, of sort, which will finance consumers as well, apart from businesses? For the so green starts, uh, well, it won't be a bank because of the regulations in India to start off yeah, I understand. applying, uh, I applying for an MBFC that. license. But, but yes, um, uh, start off focused on, on smaller, mid-size and smaller businesses and then possibly eventually getting to consumers. Fantastic. I think there's a huge gap and a need for that. Thank you, Alan, so much for joining me on today's episode of Bencil Talk. It's been a pleasure interacting with you and getting to learn on different facets of how businesses are thinking about ESG and sustainability. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks, Rajiv. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.